2: Welcome to Dear Prudence. I'm your prudence, Janae Desmond Harris. Today, I'll be answering letters from readers with dilemmas about friends, how to make them, how to help them when they're spiraling, and whether to tell them they're making really bad relationship choices. Also, a couple of letters about dogs. To help me out today, I'll be joined by Lane Moore. She's a comedian, actor, author, and musician. She is the creator of the hit comedy show, Tinder Live, front person of the band, It Was Romance, and best-selling author of How To Be Alone, and the upcoming You Will Find Your People, which is out this month on April 25th. Part memoir and part self-help book, it uncovers the complex, frightening process of building healthy friendships and finally creating your chosen family as an adult. We get so many questions about how to make and keep friends. I mean, so, so many I could have Lane on here every week, but I picked out a few, um, just the most recent ones for her to help me answer today. If you don't follow her on Twitter like I do, I just wanna share three things she's recently said about the topic of friendship to give you a little idea of where she's coming from. Number one, we absolutely need to start prioritizing friendship just as much as we do our romantic relationships, if not more. Number two, I don't know why living single is trending, but I do know it's one of the best TV shows about friendship we've ever had, and it deserves to be quoted and beloved as friends is, and honestly far more so. If you don't know that, now you know that. Number three. In a tweet about her dog, Lights, she said, I wrote a chapter of You Will Find Your People about how much this dog changed my life and opened me up to trust people. She is a gift to everyone who meets her, especially me. So since Lane is a dog owner and this is pet week at Slate, we're going to throw in a couple of questions about animals too. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back. You're listening to Dear Prudence, and I'm here with Lane Moore. Hey, Lane. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you so much for offering to help me out today. Like I said, we really need you because friendship, it's tough. It's really tough out here. Yeah. So (laughs) (laughs) let's dive right in with our first letter. It's titled, Destined to be Alone Forever. I feel
3: like it's impossible for me to make and keep deep, real friendships. I know as you get older, making friends is hard, And, while I'm not autistic, I do have severe issues with social cues. And I'm ADHD, which causes its own set of problems. I also have severe rejection-sensitive dysphoria. I'm an introvert with some social anxiety, and I work overnights with a job that A, requires weekends, and B, doesn't have a set schedule. Even my attempts to get a pattern going gets disrupted by the needs of the department. I also am a single parent to a teenager. I had a best friend who I talked to multiple times a day— Another friend decided to cut off the friendship the three of us shared, which led me spiraling into a mental health crisis. It was the straw that broke the camel's back, which meant I said some things to this friend that were very unkind. I apologized the next day, but it was 18 months ago, and I haven't heard anything since. I recently saw some other friends I was close to at an annual weekend event. Starting last year, I got the feeling that they were all communicating and making plans without me. This year, it was confirmed— One of my friends realized that they couldn't add me to a chat that I was not on. That group is made up of spouses, the majority of my friends are married, and they get together regularly. Due to my work schedule, it's not possible for me to be as involved. One of my friends I've made through work, who I've barely interacted with since I transferred jobs, who I thought might be a good friend online, is turning toxic and isn't someone I feel I can trust with many of these issues— The last therapist I had refused to give me any advice on handling the situation, saying I needed to work harder on maintaining friendships. However, I'm usually the one who reaches out, and then won't hear back for a few days, often with just a one or two word answer. It's exhausting for me to constantly be the one doing this. I left that therapist, but I haven't been able to establish a rapport with another therapist either. Is there anything I can do to maintain what few friends I have or figure out a way to make and keep friends? I just constantly feel lonely now, and I feel like it's impacting my ability to even be a good parent.
2: So I haven't read your book yet, Lane, um, because we're recording this before your release date but I have the feeling that I just wish I could have you read your whole book aloud right now.
0: Same, honestly. So pretty much every single thing this person talks about is in the book, which which is is thrilling to me because- One of the reasons that this topic is so important to me and that I wanted to write this book is because of letters like this, of situations like this, because we talk about friendship like it's easy and it's innate and no one has problems with this. And if you do, you're broken and you're bad. And I I can't believe how much of this letter I related to. And first of all, (laughs) really like the whole first paragraph, I was like, yep, yep, yep. Just a lot of the, you know, struggling with like not wanting to be rejected and having social anxiety and also her working all the time and that impacting your friendships, like all of that is such a huge thing that I wanted to talk about because I I know this. So my first book uh, was called How to Be Alone. <laughs> um, and the subtitle was If You Want To and Even If You Don't. Because of letters like this, I know exactly how this person feels where you're like... I feel like I keep bumping into these issues with connecting with people. And for me, I had a really, really challenging childhood. I didn't have the family I was supposed to have. I didn't have the friends I was supposed to have. I didn't have any of this sense of community that I dreamed of. I wasn't born into it. It had a very hard time cultivating it. And I kept bumping into these same walls that this person is talking about, where I just felt like, what am I doing wrong? So, so much of the first book is about looking at your past patterns and the things that shaped you as a child and all the times where you tried to connect and haven't been able to and returning to yourself and strengthening your ability to love yourself and develop a relationship with yourself because you're the only one you're going to have your whole life guaranteed. And then once you do all that work on yourself, you're like, oh, well, I want Community. I want friends. I want to have better relationships and better friendships. And I know the friendships I have right now aren't working for me. How do I cultivate and maintain these better ones? So that's what the second book You Will Find Your People is about. And the way I approached it is coming from somebody who struggles with so many of these same things. I always bristle when there's like advice books that are like, as somebody who made my best friends when I was six years old and we've never had any problems, let me tell you how to have friends. I don't want to hear from you. I don't want to hear from you. I want to hear from somebody who struggled the way that I have struggled. I wanted to talk about Those deep feelings of why haven't I found this yet, that shame of why haven't I found that yet, that frustration so that people who feel like this can hear another person talk about that struggle and hopefully articulate all of that pain that I didn't have anybody to really articulate for me. And I had to kind of find this path. I, I hear so many of the things in this book are here. You know, you have, mm-hmm. uh, you have the friend breakup where, uh, <laughs> that I talk a lot about, especially when. It sounds like they just left out of nowhere. I talk a lot about that because that is so painful. And I'm guessing for this person who wrote in, probably brings up a lot of rejection from when you were a kid and you're sitting there going, I'm a full adult and I'm getting rejected by my friends. This isn't supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be easier now. I think it can be just as complex and, and can take just as much, if not far more work as an adult. Hopefully this book will eradicate a lot of that shame because I think a lot of us are feeling this, and also provide real tools of how to do that, how to deal with these feelings, and and hopefully create better patterns in our friendships. Yeah,
2: I think that's so important for this letter writer and all of us who might be having similar problems to hear. So would you say that what you're reading in this letter seems somewhat in the realm of common and normal? And I wonder, do you think that's some kind of a result of like, quote unquote, the times we're living in? What is going on right now that so many people are having such similar issues?
0: Some of it is just that it is so hard to make new friends. This person is experiencing is something I've experienced so many of us have where we kind of play the hand we're dealt. We -hmm. we, we're like, these are the friends I have, I'm going to try to make it work, even if they're not working. And to me, it sounds like they're clinging to the people that they know even though it's not it's not working for either one of right. them this person's pulling away they're not giving as much but they're still trying to make them who they wish they could be because we don't want to have to go and look for new friends right it's I get it. But then it's also painful continuing to ask somebody to give you something they're never going to give you. And they've never given you. It doesn't sound like this person's friends have ever really been friends to them, you know?
2: So you said in an interview about your first book, How to Be Alone, which I'm so glad you connected it to this topic because I saw so much overlap when I read yeah. that first book. You said, I've always had to be my own best friend, which is something I really want to help people learn how to do because it's so valuable. Reparenting and becoming your own friend, your own partner. Do you think there's a place for that here, either before or alongside um, trying to repair these friendships or make new ones?
0: I really do. I mean, I do think that the largest thing I'm, I'm hearing is something that is very relatable, which is feeling that kind of loneliness that you're looking for everybody else. To heal. Yeah. I really want to say there is no judgment in that. I have done it. So many of us have right. done it. I'm not like, ugh, you can't ask them. No, that's very real. That's very valid. And I think this person has a lot of pain and a lot of overwhelm. And when I have experienced that in my life and I did not have anybody there as backup, I mean, this person's a single mother. Like all, there's so much here that's like, why don't I have the backup I should have? Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, I have felt that through the majority of my life. And Mm -hmm. the only way is to develop that relationship with yourself to be able to try to give yourself some of the things that you can't currently get from others. And I want to say it's going to feel sad. It's going to feel like you got shortchanged because you did. Because we're not meant to be solitary people. They're supposed to be community. They're supposed to be backup. They're supposed to be a network. We are supposed to be raising each other up. We're we're not supposed to be so separate, especially in these current times. We have to have that. And when you get shut out of that and you feel like everybody else has it, it feels awful. And it's not about like, I'm choosing to be alone because this is this is this. No, it's about saying if I'm alone right now and something about my connections is not working, instead of trying to make bad friendships work, Trying to sit there and go, how can I cultivate this relationship with myself? How can I try to just for now give myself some of that love, some of that reassurance? Can you be there for yourself? It's as, as cheesy as it might sound, I swear it's been so helpful for me to have conversations where I say to myself the things I wish I had a friend say to me. So if this person can have those moments, where they talk to themselves and they're able to be like, hey, it sucks Mm -hmm. that you had your friends do this to you. That sucks. You didn't deserve that. And it sucks that you're like raising this kid by yourself. That really sucks. But like, I think you're doing amazing. I think you're doing a great job. And let's get better friends. We'll just keep like, that can be such a healing thing. And you don't have to wait for anybody else to give it to you.
2: You're listening to The Dear Prudence Show, and when we come back, we'll be reading more of your letters. Stay with us.
4: Adultish is back. And this season, we're talking about standing up and learning how to take a stand for issues on the minds of young people, like... Book bans. The book banning side, they have an incredibly well-oiled machine. Filling in food deserts. We have three community colleges where we either provide food boxes or an actual operating farmer's market. And what's affecting young people's mental and emotional health.
5: Pressures of school, friendships from romantic relationships, pressures from family.
4: New episodes of Adultish from YR Media drop every Thursday, so subscribe wherever you're listening now.
2: Welcome back to Dear Prudence. I'm here with my guest, Lane Moore, to answer your letters about friendship. Okay, Lane, here's our next question. It's titled, Bad Friend.
6: As an expat who moved to my current country about six years ago, probably the best friend I made was a woman I'll call Tess. Tess and I have some shared interests, so we grew quite close over the years. When we first met, I was already dating my current partner. Tess was single when I met her, but after a couple years, she started dating a guy I'll call Matt. While Tess and I were the main bond over three to four years, we ended up spending lots of time together as couples, and I became fond of Matt as well. A couple of months ago, Tess told me that she was feeling really attracted to a new guy she'd recently met and also feeling really unhappy in her relationship with Matt. Long-term relationships always have ups and downs, so I encouraged her to take some time to think about what was driving her unhappiness with Matt before making any drastic decisions. However, a week later, the next time I spoke with her, she told me she'd already broken up with Matt and was really excited about the new guy. I was shocked. Her explanation is that throughout the three to four year relationship, she was actually never physically attracted to Matt, so it's better to just cut it off quickly and be done with it. She said she cheated on a previous partner once, felt horrible about it, and never wanted to do that again. While obviously I fully believe that anybody is entitled to end a relationship with another person at any time for any reason, I still can't help but kind of judging her. To me, it feels rather cruel to actively participate in a multi-year romantic partnership in which you're constantly declaring your love for the other person, but then one day simply say you're completely done and not even give the other person any chance to try to work on the problem or problems. It seems remarkably short-sighted on a personal note too, because if you're not examining what caused the breakdown of your previous relationship How can you hope to overcome it or do better in a future relationship? I posed that question to Tess only once, and in response, she extremely brusquely cut me off to say that, quote, she knows what I think. Now, I feel really conflicted. On the one hand, obviously, Tess is entitled to do whatever she likes in her own romantic endeavors, and feelings can't be controlled anyway. But on the other hand, I can't shake the creeping suspicion that this shows a really cruel and selfish streak of her personality to abruptly cut off a person she spent years telling she loved. I just don't know. Am I being an unsupportive, judgmental prig, or is this behavior truly a red flag that I shouldn't be counting on Tess as a bestie?
2: If we all judged our friends or ended friendships over people being selfish or cruel in relationships we would probably not have any friends what do you think
0: I don't know because I don't tend to I mean I guess like outside of this letter like I feel like my friends could be more selfish to be honest
2: Mm, mm -hmm.
0: and maybe that's just the type of friends I tend to have are often like very like people pleasers and they they struggle with giving too much more I wish many of my friends particularly women were far more selfish Mm. I wish they were asking for far more
2: most of us don't have like one smooth relationship that starts when we're 20 and ends with death. There are a lot of things that go wrong, either that we did wrong or our partners did wrong. And that's just how life is and how relationships work. So I don't think it's a great idea to get too far into the weeds and like Determine whether your friendships can continue based on your assessment of who is right and who is wrong.
0: I absolutely agree because what I'm not hearing here that I thought was interesting. Looking at this situation, and you're basing whether or not you should leave this friendship based on how you are perceiving externally how someone is dealing with a breakup. Mm-hmm. You don't fully know that. Have you fully asked that? Have you fully had th- these questions like? you don't know what it is from her perspective. Relationships are messy. I always try to see both sides. And there's a part of me that's like, I feel like there's a lot of women who've been in relationships and been like, I don't think I was ever attracted to him. To me, I think that's very normal. I think that's very, very relatable. I don't think that that is selfish. I don't think, I don't know this person at all. It could be, again, there's so much context we're missing. But I think a lot of times it's more indicative of how often women feel pressured to do things they don't really want to do. Like there's a Mm. lot I think that could be there that doesn't necessarily read as purely selfish to me uh, on paper. But I think the biggest thing that I noticed about this is that there is nothing the person who wrote and said that said this person has been a bad friend to them at all. Great point. Right? Like nothing had been said, like they're kind of crappy to me and, and now I see this and now it makes me think, no, it literally sounded like this has been one of your best friends and you're judging what little this person has told you about their relationship. And now you're worried they're going to be selfish. If there are other things this person did to you directly that seemed like they were selfish, we didn't hear about those. So I can't speak to those. But if there weren't, you cannot think they handled it the right way. But in terms of looking at it as like a warning sign for your friendship, if they haven't done anything to to make you believe that, some people handle their romantic relationships very different. Some people are really, really great friends and they struggle in their romantic relationships. That doesn't mean they're going to be a bad friend or, or even that they were bad to this person. I don't know. I think there's a lot of grace and communication that could happen here.
2: Right. I mean, I want to be fair because I don't know if you agree with this, but one drum I'm always beating in these letters has to do with politics and friendship and relationships. And I am always telling people, you know, if someone is spewing these political views that you think are hateful, or if they're making choices, in that arena, that you think shows self, like a lack of compassion, take that seriously. You know, yeah. it doesn't matter if they're nice to you when you're chatting around the work water cooler. It doesn't matter if they're pleasant to go shopping with. Like, you shouldn't be friends with someone whose values you think are really bad. So, I'm kind yeah. of like challenging myself here, wondering why I'm not applying that standard to the being cruel to a romantic partner.
0: It's different though, because I and the reason it's different because I, I fully I fully agree with that, and that is true. Like I say this in the book as well. If you see like, this person's really nice to you, but they're really mean to waiters or whatever, like don't ignore that. Just don't think like, well, they're nice to me. It's more that I'm not seeing what happened in this relationship as specifically selfish. I can't get a read that that's what it was. If there really was something that she wrote in and it was like, oh, this is awful. And I would never do someone that to somebody. And I think it's really bad to do that to somebody. And I have all the facts and I know like, That's different. Then I do think you sit there and you go, hmm, have they done stuff like that to me? Do I want to be friends with someone who would do something like that? But to me, it sounds like they only have a very surface level knowledge of what happened here. You can have that conversation and say, hey, I I want to know more about this. Can you help me explain? Like, don't take it on the offensive because maybe that's what it is. Maybe this Mm -hmm. friend was just like, I already know you're judging me. I don't want to talk, which is fair. But if you have this like, hey, I want to understand more. It sounds like it was probably painful for you to be in a relationship for three to four years where you weren't attracted. Was that painful? Like, open that up. And look, if the person shows you really, because they're going to do one of two things, you're going to realize there's something more going on here than you realized or you're going to be like, wow, you really are just like selfish and careless. And I don't want to, but you have to, you can't just assume based on what, you know, here is my, is my gut.
2: I think that's a great point. It helps. It helps me feel more consistent. (laughs) Thank you. That's why you were asked to write a book about friendship and I wasn't. Okay. So that's it for that letter. And our next question is titled far away friend.
5: What do you do when you can't do anything? My close friend of many years struggled with depression, ADHD, and addiction through undergrad in her early 20s. She was sober for the last three years, and it was like magic. This past fall, though, she moved across country for this prestigious professional school, and she's been pretty much spiraling ever since. She's struggling to make friends, she's drinking and using again, and is behind on classes. I know she's seeing a therapist and is able to get her ADHD medication right now. But every time we talk, it's her detailing a string of seemingly avoidable bad choices that make her miserable and make it even harder for her to get back on track. When she was struggling before, at least she had community. It sounds like she's very alone right now. I've done everything I can think of. I've listened gently, I've connected her with a handful of people I know in the city, and even offered to do parallel work-study over FaceTime. But she's really struggling, and I worry about her all the time. What do I do when I can't do anything? We're close and I love her, but I know the choices that would be easy for me aren't easy for her. At the same time, she's so miserable that it seems like she's not even trying.
2: So I just want to acknowledge how sad and frustrating this is. And another common theme that I see in letters about relationships and family relationships and friendships is that when another adult is struggling with mental health or addiction or just making reckless choices but these things fall short of making them an immediate danger to themselves or others, there's almost nothing you can do to force them to change. So, my first thought here, and Lane, you can tell me if you agree, is that there's a misconception, I think, that part of being a good friend is being a life coach. And I would just encourage the letter writer to drop the life coach part of the job, just kind of resign from that.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you're doing all you can do, then exactly. The the, the piece of it has to be you letting go and accepting that you're doing all you can do. It doesn't, that's literally it. Like, what do you do when you can't do anything? I think You give yourself grace and you let go of the rope and you go, I've done all I can do. And if you really feel like you have offered everything that you can offer, like you can't do any more than that. That's it. And you also can't make a grown adult different. You can't change people. We talk about that with romantic relationships. We don't talk about it with friendships, but you really can't change this person. And look, as painful as it is, like maybe they need to experience this right now. And maybe in a year they're like, whoa, I went through that, but it got me to this place. Like, I think acknowledge how beautiful it is that you want to try because so many people don't even try. Mm -hmm. But also let yourself off the hook because it can't be something that is like controlling your whole life now if like somebody can't receive anything further. right? Neither one of you is benefiting from that.
2: I think being a good friend can just be being someone who this person knows really cares about them it doesn't mean having to get them back onto the right track. I love what you said about how sometimes people just need to go through what they need to go through, because I think that takes so much of the stress out of friendship and watching people go through these ups and downs. I mean, very few of us have just had a perfect life where we didn't make any mistakes. Like, that's (laughs) how everyone learns, right? I mean, I'm not saying that like spiraling or abusing drugs and alcohol is something that everyone has to experience to grow up. But I do think we have to have like our low periods and our mishaps. And I think it provides a sense of peace to just say this person is going through what they need to go through. And my job as a friend is not to change them or repair them, but to care about them.
0: I mean, also, I know very many recovering like addicts, alcoholics, things like that will tell you that there is nothing that you could have done mm. when they were in that place. There was nothing that anybody could have done. That's just where they were at that time. You can't like pull somebody out of addiction or like, you know, if they're relapsing or, or whatever the case is, You that's just, it's very, very hard to do that. And it's so... Kind to want to do that.
2: Have those people taught you anything about what is most helpful? Is it just regular check-ins? Is it being non-judgmental? Is it asking to spend more time together? Is it treating you like someone who's not having these challenges? Just is there anything concrete that the letter writer could focus on?
0: I think the things that have come up for me when I've been in my own crisis and friends of mine have been in their own crisis, just consistently checking in and not even. I've stopped. Sometimes asking how someone is doing, especially if you know the answer is bad. Like I don't do that anymore with some of my friends who I know are are in a similar, like they're just in a rough place. I'm not going to ask them how they are. I know how they are. They're in pain. Right. But I am going to remind them that I'm here. I'm going to remind them that I love them. I'm going to say like, just thinking of you, I hope your day is going okay. I love you. That's it. Just reminding them that you are there. Reminding them you still care. Not trying to fix them. Not trying to change them not asking them to be another way, not asking them to do things they maybe can't do right now. I think just being a steady reminder in their ear that like, you still love them. You're still here. You know, it's hard.
2: And I would add to talk about other things too. every conversation doesn't yeah. have to be about the crisis and, you know, healing and getting better and getting your life on track. Like you can still talk about reality TV or politics or the weather or whatever. It yeah. Is. You talk to pe- your other friends. about. Absolutely. It. I think being treated like a person who's not struggling and who isn't stigmatized. I could imagine it could be really helpful here.
0: Yeah, I think so, too.
2: This is Dear Prudence. We need to take a break, but when we come back, more letters from you and advice from us. Stay tuned.
5: On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things.
0: I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace
2: sex with driving.
5: Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts.
2: Can't get enough Dear Prudence? Then you should definitely join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You'll get to hear me answer an extra question every week just for members. With your subscription, you get ad-free listening across the Slate Network and unlimited reading on the Slate site, including all Dear Prudence columns, past and present. Go to slate.com forward slash prudyplus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. Again, that's slate.com forward slash prudyplus. You're listening to Dear Prudence, and I'm here with Lane Moore. Good question so far. We're going to change lanes because, again, it is Pet Week at Slate.com. So this letter is titled, No Dogs Allowed.
1: My partner's mom recently had some health troubles, which are now under control. But due to those and her age, late 70s, she and my partner's father have begun to put their affairs in order for when they pass. At the height of COVID, my partner's mom adopted a puppy, and she's taking his future care into consideration since she feels it's possible that he may outlive her. I don't know enough about dogs to know if this is likely. As long as she follows her doctor's plan of care, she should be around for many more years, and she's very good about listening to her medical advisors. She's got my partner and I lined up to be the dog's new caretakers if she should pass before him. Whether my partner's father outlives her or not is irrelevant. The dog is solely her thing, and he's told her that if he and the dog were still around when she passed, it'll be going to a shelter. This upset her terribly. He's her baby, and she adores him, and I completely understand her not wanting him dumped in a shelter. We have a cat I'd do just about anything for, so I'm not heartless by any means. But I'm with my partner's dad on this one. Despite its age, the dog isn't fully housebroken. His behavior is awful, constant barking, jumping, pawing, gnawing on fingers and feet, chewing anything he can find. His breed is not known for chewing past puppyhood. I think this is boredom because he's confined to one room of the house due to toileting issues. He's not leash trained or socialized with other animals. I've offered her basic manners classes at a facility my friend runs free of charge, which she declined, saying he's, quote, a puppy who will outgrow things, end quote. "'Important to note, I floated the offer only after she'd complained about fearing that he'd knock her down by pulling too hard or tangling the lead around her legs. i do my best not to tell people how to raise their own kids or animals. When my partner informed me that his mom felt we'd be a good landing place for her dog just in case, I asked what they'd told her. And to their credit, they said it was a discussion they needed to have with me first. During our discussion, my partner disclosed that they want nothing to do with the dog, and the only reason they'd said yes is to ease their mom's mind about the issue. I was greatly relieved because it was a hard no for me, and I'd die on that hill before letting the little crapping biting terrorist into my home. Now we're stuck with how to respond to his mom. My partner feels that the best thing to do is say yes because odds are greatly in favor of us never having to deal with this situation at all. We decided that if we agree to assume care of him, we'd find a no-kill establishment to handle rehoming. I know this falls under the white lie category, but outside of her poor pet ownership, I adore my partner's mom, and we have a great relationship. In the deepest part of my heart, this feels easy, but wrong. I'd surely want to know that whoever took my cat after my passing would love and care for him, not send him off to live in a cage on the off chance that someone might take a gamble on him. But Prudy... This dog isn't for either of us. We're not really dog people. Even if the dog had perfect manners, we've both admitted to ourselves and each other that we just don't want dogs, no matter what.
2: Okay, Lane, I don't have pets. I know you love your dog very much. So I'm going to defer to you a little bit on this. What would you want someone to do if you were the partner's mom in this situation who had this dog that you loved and you wanted to know that it was going to be cared for um, after your passing?
0: Yeah, I don't think you should say, yeah, we'll totally do that when this is their dying wish and you're going to like later on be like, nah, just kidding. Like that's so upsetting to me. That's so upsetting. If that was happening to me, literally, God forbid, like she can ask someone else, like at least give her the real information, say like, Hey, we don't feel comfortable with this. Like, this is how we feel. This is like challenging. And. I'm always on the side of like clear communication because especially this is someone's dying wish. Good God. What would the difference be? I know, you know, whatever. There's some people who are like, dogs aren't children. Fine, whatever. But if this feels like that to her, honor that. If someone said, hey, will you take care of my child when I die? And you're like, yeah, we'll totally adopt her. Psych. (laughs) Like, that's so upsetting. (laughs) Just say, hey... That's so beautiful that you would want us to do this. I know how much, you know, they mean to you. We don't feel comfortable doing that. Is there anybody else we can call? Like, it's okay if you can't do something. You can offer to help, but don't lie and not do it. Like, I just, that just feels really wrong to me. And I I think being honest and honoring, instead of feeling like, ugh, why are you doing this? Like, this is so, like, this person's dying. Like, I I think just holding, like,
2: whoo,
0: what
5: a...
2: I mean, the good news is it does sound like they have some time left on Earth. So it's not like they're going to die next week. So I think there's um, plenty of time, and this is a great use for social media, whatever the breed of dog is. Yeah. Find like the community around that breed and find some people who love them. And I guarantee there's going to be someone in one of those groups, hopefully, someone with like a lovely farm who would absolutely love to have an open door to this animal if ever needed. So take this time instead of like telling a lie to try to develop and nurture some of those relationships and come up with a plan that really feels good to everyone. And I think it will really help your partner feel better when your mom does die. One thing you don't need surrounding death is guilt. Yes. Um, And lying would just create a lot of guilt. So even though it seems like it would be a white lie and it would be easy, um, I don't want to put that on either of you, especially when I think there's time to figure out other options. Okay, so that's it for that letter. And our next question is titled worried dog neighbor.
4: My wife and I have a one and a half year old pup that's a sweet girl with a lot of energy. About nine months ago, a section of our fence connecting our backyard with our elderly neighbor's backyard fell over during a windstorm. And as luck would have it, they had just gotten a husky puppy the exact same age as ours. The two pups became instant best friends, so we arranged to have a gate installed between our yards so the dogs could continue to play. Which has been great and a huge help to keep both active and tired out. The problem is this. Our neighbors have evidently relegated their dog to be a permanently outside dog. She's always outside, including overnight, and as a result of seemingly having little to no human interaction with their owners, she's starved for hours. She constantly scratches at our door and howls to be let in. She's very sweet, but not very well-behaved at all, and she's so needy of even our dog's attention that our pup doesn't even want to go out and hang in the backyard anymore. We do shut the gate to give us and our dog uh, some peace and quiet, but I worry for our neighbor's dog. Although she's a husky, it's starting to get cold out at night, and I have no reason to think my neighbors will bring her in. And I don't see her getting any better socially if they've just kicked her outside forever. I don't want to tell anyone how to raise their dog. Well, I guess I do, actually. But is there a script I can use to address this with my neighbor and gently suggest they train their dog and start bringing her inside, at least at night? My neighbor's an old man and a very old school country guy, for what it's worth.
2: Okay, so I have an idea on this one. Um, I think you can pretend as if you want to bring the dog inside your house as a favor. So you could say something to your neighbor like, hey, you know, our dogs are best friends. Um, my puppy is really lonely inside overnight and um, he's been making a lot of noise and just kind of like eating the furniture and stuff. And I think he would do so much better with a friend. Could I possibly borrow your dog for sleepovers and then ask if you can just like bring the animal over and keep it safe and warm? What do you think?
0: Yeah, I think if they're open to doing that, I think why not? And also you can get a better gauge of knowing how they feel about it because it's weird. Sometimes people who are kind of like this with their dog are kind of like, no, it's my dog. Like, even though they're Mm. being, you know, maybe being kind of neglectful, I can't really tell. It's so tough to know if that's what's happening or or why this is happening. But sometimes they'll still be like weirdly territorial. And then you're like, Um, but you can't know until you ask. And then maybe again, uh, leaving that communication open for somebody to be like, I know I felt so bad lately. I've been working a lot or like, who knows what it is? Like, maybe there is something where like, these aren't bad people. They've been dealing with some crises of their own, and they wish they could do something. Maybe they can't afford, you know, to board the dog or whatever. And because I think part of it too is you want the well-being for the dog, and you also don't want to feel like your neighbor is bad. And so when you bring something like that up, it brings an opportunity for your neighbor to be like, "Yeah, I've a- I'm actually like, thank you for saying that. It's been really hard lately." And you're like, "Oh, my neighbor's a good person, and they're struggling," or. You know, there's really nothing worse than I. I lived near a dog who was like always outside, and we noticed one day it looked like the dog had like a hurt leg, and like mm-hmm. we were just like, what the hell is happening? That like this dog really is being neglected and treated. You know, we don't know what's happening, and it's such a hard situation. So, but you know, if they're friends and you feel friendly enough to kind of broach it, at the very least, it opens up the window in a friendly way to be like. Hey, I noticed this. Like maybe there's a way I can help with this.
2: Yeah. And maybe there's a way too. I was just thinking as you were talking to develop a relationship with him um, that starts before confronting him about the dog. It says he's an old school country guy. At first I read it as an older guy, Um, but I don't know. Maybe like you said, he is going through a hard time or needs some help. So maybe just kind of like get to know him and take his temperature a little bit. Um, Yeah. In the past I received a letter that was similar to this. And I remember receiving the advice from an expert that said a good technique is to use the phrase I've noticed and then offer to do something. So yeah, I've noticed your dog is outside. I've noticed it's getting a little colder. I've noticed she's scratching to be let in. Um, I would like to offer to whatever it may be, build a dog house, let her in, help you find a place for her in your home. Um, I think there are some options here.
0: Yeah, I think so too. And it will make you feel proactive at least because there's only so much you can do but even offering that and like opening that door is at least something you can do which feels so much better than nothing
2: totally and it's like impossible to sit and do nothing while an animal is suffering next door okay so those are all the questions we have for this week as always i hope we've been helpful lane thank you um friends and dogs two of the best things in the world but not without their challenges so i really appreciate your insights
0: yeah, thank you so much for having me.
2: Pre-order your copy of Lane's second book, You Will Find Your People, where she explores the frustrating, messy, and at times deeply joyful experience of learning how to make meaningful friendships as an adult. You Will Find Your People is out this month on April 25th. Do you need help getting along with partners, relatives, coworkers, or people in general? Write to me. Go to slate.com forward slash prudy. That's slate.com forward slash P-R-U-D-I-E. The Dear Prudence column publishes every Thursday, and you can join us for the live chat on Mondays at noon Eastern. If you'd like to hear your question answered on the podcast,
0: we are looking for letter writers who would be comfortable recording their questions for the show. You can stay anonymous.
2: Dear Prudence is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks, editorial help from Paola de Verona. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer... And Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of Audio. I'm your dear Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Until next time.
3: Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now,
4: you want to get mixed up in the family
3: business. Introducing The Godfather at ChapaCasino.com.